I have on many occasions through the years uh, been to Bible studies and listened to sermons in churches and been in the position where I've been there and there's been someone up the front doing a teaching thing. And uh, on many occasions I've come to the conclusion that maybe after talking for an hour or so, they've actually talked about absolutely nothing. And it's always occurred to me, now there's a subject I could get my teeth into, that's an important subject, that, nothing. nothing. <laughs> and uh, that's, that's what we're going to do tonight, you know, I'm going to do teaching on nothing, and it is tremendously important, it's, as a subject, it's neglected. Um, <laughs> earlier on, earlier on about six o'clock, Blinda said, what are you doing tonight? Because Blinda's the only one I'll say in advance to what I'm doing, and she said, what are you doing tonight? And I said, I'm going to do nothing. And she said, oh, um... What, it's going to be a question time, is it? And I said, no, nothing. And she said, what, we're just going to have a time of worship. I said, no, I'm going to do nothing. And, and then she sort of clicked. Uh, so if you're really, really, the, the subject of nothing, um, those of you who really know your Bibles well will know that the only place you can go to to launch this is Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. Uh, on any subject, uh, you know, sort of like anyone who really knows their Bible and really knows their theology, uh, knows the verse that kicks off that subject, whether it's justification or predestination or whether it's the last things or whatever. Now, when it comes to the all-important subject of nothing, then the only place we can begin is Genesis 1, verse 1. So let's actually read it. It's very simple. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, we know that apart from heaven and apart from the lake of fire, the heavens and the earth is all there is. So, before the heavens and the earth were created, there wasn't anything. And it tells us this, that when God created everything that there is, and remember he created the angelic realm first, when God created, he did it with absolutely nothing. Now, go to Job, the book of Job, and uh, our second verse that everyone who understands the subject of nothing automatically knows that you have to go to in the Bible. In the book of Job, and chapter 26, and in verse 7, this is uh, one of the chapters when Job is discoursing. Uh, you know, he's, he's kind of, you know, talking about, you know, the mightiness of God in, in the massive... Discourse and uh, in, in chapter 26 and verse 7 he says this, speaking of God, he stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth upon nothing. Now, can you begin to see the importance of this subject? <laughs> We're establishing two vitally important principles. Principle number one is this, God does his best work with nothing. And the reason is because then there isn't something to spoil it. And the second principle we can establish is that therefore, given that God does his best work with nothing, therefore, what God uses or plans to use, he first reduces to nothing. Because nothing is what God works best with. Now, the important thing to realise is that the application of this 
is as follows. God wants to use us. Therefore, what must be one element of God's work in our lives? Simply reducing us to nothing. Go to the book of Judges and let's see this. Because all the way through the Bible you'll find that when God gets his hands on people, it's what he does. Judges chapter 7, and uh, we're going to read the first eight verses. Now this is the story of Gideon. And Gideon was minding his own business when God revealed himself to him and said, Gideon, I'm going to use you. You know, and you're going to, I'm going to use you to lead an army and that through you, Israel is going to be free of the people who have invaded it, blah, blah, blah. <coughs> now, Judges chapter 7, we'll start from verse 1. Then Jeroboam, and then it's got brackets, that is Gideon, because Gideon had different names. Uh, I think the Jews do that to confuse us. They, they, they've all got lots of different names, haven't they? Simon and Peter, all right. But here uh, you've got Gideon, who's also called Jeroboam. So Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Harrod. Uh, so here they're encamping. Oh no, sorry, that's Harrod. Sorry, wrong place, wrong, wrong, wrong place. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moray in the valley. Now what's happened here is that, that he's, he's collected together all the faithful Jews who follow the Lord and there's this massive army. And God has told Gideon, I'm going to use this army of yours to bring victory to Israel. Now verse 2, the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into, my, into their hand, lest Israel vaunt themselves against me, saying, my own hand has delivered me. Now here's God saying, look, Gideon, we've got a problem here. <laughs> I want to use this army, but it's too big. Sorry, can't, can't use it, it's too big. It's, it's extraordinary, isn't it? You'd have thought the bigger the better, but God said, no, it's too big, can't use it. Now, now therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home. And Gideon tested them. 22,000 returned and 10,000 remained. All right, so we've gone from 32,000, in fact, down to 10,000. You think, right, okay, no problem here. Verse 4. <coughs> and the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. He's saying, it's no good, Gideon. You know, can't, can't handle it. There's too many of you, right? Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And he of whom I say to you, this man shall go with you, shall go with you. And any of whom I say to you, this man shall not go, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone that laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. And likewise, everyone that kneels down to drink. And the number of those that lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I'll deliver you. Now, the important thing about this is, it's a test, all right? They go down to the water and Gideon says, drink. Now, the ones who lapped, the soldiers who lapped, they put their hands into the water and they cupped the water in their hands and pulled it out to their mouths and, and lapped it like that. Now, those soldiers were good soldiers. They were vigilant. You see what I mean? They were always on the lookout, all right, for the enemy. 
Now, the bad soldiers, the ones who were only thinking of the fact they were thirsty, what did they do? They stuck their heads down, they got down on their hands and knees and stuck their heads in the river. Now, that's like the ostrich. You can't see a thing, can you? you see? So it's a test there. With the 300 men that lapped, I'll deliver you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go every man to his home. So he took the jars, sorry, so he took the jars of the people from their hands and their trumpets and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Now basically what happened was that, that, that later on they attacked and they managed to make so much noise that they sounded like 100,000 and the Midianites just fled, you know, and God worked like that. But the important thing about this is that the army, Gideon's army, and this is a picture of spiritual warfare, Gideon's army was reduced from 32,000 down to 300. Now that is a reduction of 99%. And when you've got only 1% of something left, then it's virtually nothing, isn't it? So God reduced them to nothing. Now, why? Why did God reduce them to nothing? The answer is in verse 2. We'll read it again. When God said, The people with you are too many for me, lest Israel vaunt themselves against me, saying, My own hand has done it. Now, what God is saying here, if you go into the affray with 32,000 men, I'm going to deliver you. You're going to win because I'm going to work a miracle. But if there's 32,000 of you, Gideon, do you know what you're going to do? In your sinfulness, you're going to think that it was because it was what you did, that it was your leadership and it was your fighting men. And God said, I'm not going to have that. So I'm going to reduce you to nothing so it's impossible for you to win. Therefore, when you do win, you will know that you've won because I have done it. And it's not because you're clever or anything like that at all. Now, from that, we're going on to ask a question. And the question is this. How do we, as Christians, secure the blessings of God on our lives? Or put it another way, how do we grow in the Lord? Now, this is a question that every believer has got to ask. How do we grow in the Lord? Now, obviously, there are loads of answers. Prayer, yes. Bible teaching, yeah. Fellowship, serving the Lord, you name it. And yes to all of them. They are all vital ingredients to growing in the Lord. But there's an underlying thing without which you can have all that lot and it's no good, all right? And the principle of spiritual growth, as we're going to see, is precisely the principle that we saw earlier. The principle that what God uses, he first reduces to nothing. Go to Matthew chapter 5, and this is the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, the verse we're going to read is really one of the key verses in the Sermon on the Mount, the key to understanding what it means to follow the Lord, what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. And in Matthew 5, and verse 3, this is Jesus speaking. And the first thing he says in the Sermon on the Mount, he opens the Sermon on the Mount by saying this. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, not blessed are the poor. This has got nothing to do with money. Forget that. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, notice that the key thing about poor people, and believe me, if you want to talk financially, in Bible times, the poor were really poor. We're not talking about, you know, someone trying to struggle through on 40 pounds a week dull money. I'm talking in, the, in Bible times, if you were poor, you were poor. It was poverty par excellence, if you can have such a thing. But the whole point about being poor, and Jesus is here talking about people who are poor in spirit, if you're poor, you have absolutely nothing to contribute. If you were poor, and biblical poor was poor, you've got nothing of yourself, nothing that you can give. All you can do is to receive what you were given by someone else who has got what you need. Now that's the point. Poor people can contribute nothing. They can only receive. And Jesus here is talking spiritually. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now go to Isaiah 55. And I've no doubt in my mind that Jesus was thinking of this verse in Isaiah when he was speaking on the Sermon on the Mount. And in Isaiah 55, verse 1, get a very, very simple, you know, kind of uh, picture here. It's God speaking to Israel. Ho, everyone who thirsts, Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Now here, in Isaiah 55 verse 1, God's holding a sail. I don't know if he does car boot sails, but I mean God's holding a sail. And he's selling what he's got. He's selling what he is. And notice that he says... If you want to buy it, come, all right? But to buy it, you've got to have no money. Now, can you see? The price of God's blessing on our life, the price of growing in Him, is spiritual bankruptcy. Is it? The only people who can buy anything with, from God are those who have got nothing to buy it with. Can you say? Ye that have no money, come buy. What God is saying, if you are spiritually destitute, if you are spiritually bankrupt in every way, then you can receive what I have. Alright? That is what being poor in spirit means. It is someone who knows that they have nothing to contribute to God whatsoever. And that anything they receive from God is gift, charity, grace. Now here's the point, if something has a price on it, someone's selling something, we live in a consumer society, if something's got a price on it, you can't have it without meeting that price. If you go into a shop and you say, oh, there's a tape recorder, that's nice, and it says, you know, £125. 
The only way you can get that tape recorder is to go in and pay the price. £125 will secure you that tape recorder. And it's the same with God. You can only receive from God what you've got the right price for because God's put a price on everything that he's got. And the price of God's grace is nothing. That's the price. Absolutely nothing. Now, therefore, as long as we've got resources of our own, as long as we're, as it were, going into God's shop with a fiver in our pocket, here's our contribution, he says, oh, no sale. Sorry, you've got to meet the price. The price on the ticket says nothing. It doesn't say a fiver. It doesn't say a tenner. It says absolutely nothing. But you're coming to me and you're offering me 20 quid. Well, sorry, I can't let you have it because the price is nothing. Now, can you see, we are only in the market for spiritual growth when we are spiritually destitute. As long as we have resources of our own that we are contributing to God, as long as we feel that's the situation in our lives, all right, then what God has to do, he has to arrange for us to spend out what we think we've got. He's got to arrange for us to use up our contribution until it's gone. Because he can't let us have what we need while we've got something to contribute towards it. So therefore, God lets us just spend out what we think we have spiritually. Just use it up, thrash around, use it up until it's gone. And then, when what we considered to be our resources, when we've got the message that spiritually we have nothing to offer at all, once we've realised that, that we have got and are nothing, then we can meet the price. Then we can start to receive from the Lord everything that we need. When we realise that what we have and what we are in ourselves is worth nothing to God, then we can start receiving what he has and what he is in himself. The price is always nothing. Therefore, what God uses, he first has to reduce to zero, to nothing. Now, last week when we were uh, doing the sinking of the disciple, we looked at old Jacob, didn't we? <coughs> we saw the way that Jacob considered himself to be a, a man who was pooling his resources with God. You know, there was God's army, and uh, here was Jacob's army, and so the place where he had the vision, he saw the army of the Lord, he named that place Mahanaim, which meant the place of two armies, because Jacob thought, right, Lord, there's your bit, there's your army, there's your contribution, Lord, here's my army, here's my contribution, so I'll name this place two armies. And he was a man, he was doing his bit, and God was doing his bit, pooling resources with God. And, uh, you know, we saw, didn't we, the way that eventually God separated him from all that, got him alone at Brook Jabbok, got him over the stream, and his army, his wealth, all the people who followed him, even his wife, his children, his family, he left that all behind. And it was only when he had nothing, when what he had seen as his contribution to the Lord, only when all that was gone, 
Then, do you remember, Jesus came and wrestled with him and broke his thigh. And it was at that point where Jacob was renamed Israel. It was at that point where, I mean, Jacob had been following the law for 20 years when that happened, but it was at that point when the real business, the real thing that God had planned to use Jacob for, it was only after he'd been reduced to nothing and was broken, only then could God really start to implement the plan that Jacob's life was all about. And it's exactly the same for us. You see, the Christian life is not what we do for Jesus. The Christian life is what Jesus does through us. Now, if we say, for instance, that Christianity is a changed life, that's true, obviously, he changes us. That's true, but it's only half the truth. It's not that Christianity is merely a changed life, but Christianity is an ex-changed life. Now, can you see the difference? See, when Jesus died on the cross, he died on the cross to deal with the sin problem. It took his death to deal with the sin problem so that then man could be in fellowship with God. All right. But... When Jesus rose again from the dead, because remember, him dying on the cross, that was the end of the sin problem. The way to fellowship with God was wide open. He was then the door. But when Jesus rose again from the dead, that was so that he could then live through us in our place. Do you remember when we did the salvation series, we saw that justification, or being set free from the penalty of sin, was because Jesus died. And that sanctification, which is being set free from the, pen, from the power of sin now, was because he rose again from the dead. So our sins are forgiven because Jesus died on the cross. But we are changed and sin is overcome because Jesus is alive and wants to live through us. Now that is a free gift that we receive daily. It's an absolute free gift. Forgiveness for our sins was a free gift. A changed life and overcoming the power of sin is also a free gift that we receive. But remember, we can only receive from God if we are spiritually destitute. It's pure charity. That is the condition always for receiving anything from the Lord at all. But you see, here's the problem. That's the theory. And we all say, yes, yes, that's very clear, that's very biblical, yes. But the problem is this. Because we are sinners, we are naturally self-sufficient. We are proud. We are stiff-necked. It is natural for us to do things in our own strength. Can you see what the problem is? It's one thing to say, oh yes, of course, we're nothing. But do we believe that? We most certainly don't. All right. You know, so it's not going to be me, it's going to be Jesus through me, because we're used to doing everything of ourselves. Because our hearts deceive us. We're proud. We think we are something. We naturally think that we are capable of doing it ourselves. 
All right, Lord, leave it to me. All right, that's the attitude. Therefore, God has to actually reduce us. He has to work to show us, to demonstrate to us, to prove to us that anything done in our own strength when it comes to spiritual things is an absolute waste of time. But we don't believe it's a waste of time. We naturally follow the Lord in our own strength. So what does he do? He sees, oh, he's coming with a fiver in his pocket. I'm going to have to make sure he spends out that money before he can receive anything from me. So what does God do? He lets us get on with it in our own strength. He actually arranges situations so that we eventually realise, because of the disaster of it all, we actually realise, I did that in my own strength. It was an absolute waste of time. And he demonstrates that to us again and again and again and again until we are starting to become convinced that what the Bible says about our strength being of no avail until we actually start to believe that of ourselves. The only way for the Lord to get us to actually accept this truth is to demonstrate it to us again and again and again. Just go to Galatians 6. <coughs> when Paul wrote to the Galatian church, he was dealing with the essence of what it means to follow Jesus. He was asking the question, was it through the law? Is it by obeying the law? And of course the answer to that was absolutely not. Now in Galatians, Paul actually says what following the Lord is all about. And in chapter 6 and verse 3, all right, we read this. He says, if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And there is our problem. When it comes to following the Lord, we think we're something. The truth is, we're nothing. But our sinful natures don't accept that, and we carry on as if we're something. Therefore, God works in us to really set before us the truth that we are indeed nothing. But it's only by really letting us get into mess after mess after mess after mess until we start to realise, hey, doing anything in my own strength is an absolute waste of time. We'll be back to Galatians shortly, but in the meantime, go to Exodus chapter 2. Let's have a look at Moses. Exodus chapter 2. Now Moses, perhaps um, you know, one of the most singular leaders that God used in the Old Testament, and uh, let's actually see how God works in this guy. Because remember, God had a plan for Moses. He wanted to use Moses. But in order to use him, what did he have to do first? Had to reduce him to nothing. Now, let's go to chapter 2, Exodus chapter 2, first of all, and verse 11. All right, And uh, we read this. The Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. He looked this way, oh sorry, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. And he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. 
When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man that did the wrong, Why did you strike your fellow? And he answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed that Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. Now what's happening here? is that Moses, remember, he was taken from amongst the Jews. He was a Jew. He was taken from amongst the Jews as a baby and raised as an Egyptian. But he was a Jew. And Moses, by now, has become aware that God was going to use him to set the people free. Now here, we have Moses reaching the point, I can't stand this anymore. I've got to act. I've got to get this people free. And so he acts. He steps out and he does it. And he completely blows it. All he does is turn himself into a murderer, ends up fleeing, and made life even harder for the very people he wanted to set free. So here we have Moses' response to God's call on his life. All right, Lord, leave it to me. And the giveaway is, do you see that verse? He looked this way. And that way, and seeing no one, he forgot to look up. And that was the problem. He was trusting in himself. You leave it to me, Lord. Now, the result of this is that he now has to flee, run for his life. Now, having been brought up as a prince in Egypt, probably the most privileged upbringing you could have had at that time, all right, and all the pride, all the arrogance that goes with it, because an upbringing like that, pride and arrogance, is part of it. So now he has to flee into the backside of the desert, alright? And for 40 years, this man, who's held a privileged place in Egyptian society, this man is now a working class shepherd out in the backside of the desert. He's no one. All the pomp, all the advantage, everything he had, all this power as having been raised as Pharaoh's son, oh, it's gone. And now he's just a humble shepherd in the backside of the desert, knowing that if the Egyptians ever got their hands on him, they'd kill him because he was a murderer. Now this is truly reducing a man to nothing, isn't it? Incidentally, this desert, the wilderness, that he is now a shepherd in for 40 years. Now, it was a big place, but 40 years is a long time. He knew this wilderness like the back of his hand. It was the same wilderness that he was later on to lead Israel through to the Promised Land. You can only lead people where you yourself has first been. Right, now let's go over into chapter 4, 40 years later. <coughs> Uh, oh no, 3, 3, 3 verse 11, alright. Uh, right, now then. Um, no, right, okay, we'll start from 3 verse 1. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the mountain. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire and out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and lo, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight. Now what's happening here is that after 40 years 
in the wilderness, 40 years later, God is now revealing himself to Moses again. Only this time, Moses is to fulfill God's plan for his life. But what I want you to notice is this. Go to chapter 4, verse 1. Moses, Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. Go down into verse 10. But Moses said, O Lord, I'm not eloquent, either heretofore or since thou hast spoken to thy servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who made man's mouth? Who makes him dumb or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O my Lord, send, I pray, some other person. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron your brother? I know that he can speak well, he, um, and behold, he's coming out to meet you, and you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. Now what's happening here? Forty years previous, Moses knew that he was to lead God's people to freedom. He's cocky, he's self-assured, you leave it to me, Lord, and it's a disaster. So 40 years festering in the desert, reduced to nothing. Now, 40 years later, God's call comes again. This time it's the real thing. Moses was out by 40 years the first time. But now it's the real thing. Now notice the difference. He is hesitant. He is frightened. He has absolutely no confidence in himself whatsoever and eventually persuades God that rather than him, Moses, doing the preaching, he'd write the sermons for Aaron, his brother-in-law, and that Aaron would actually do the speaking. Now, can you see the change in him? The cockiness, the arrogance, the pride, all that spiritual money he had in his back pocket to buy things from God, it's all gone, he spent it out. Now he knows he's nothing. And now he knows that it has to be the Lord working through him, or it's not going to happen at all. And that is the result of the Lord working in someone to bring him to absolutely nothing. And now God's going to do it, but with Moses out of the way. Forty years previously, it was Moses doing it for the Lord. Now Moses is reduced to nothing, out of the way, now it's going to be the Lord doing it through Moses. Just go to John chapter 3 and uh, just something that John the Baptist says. You'll know it but we'll actually read it. John chapter 3 and in verse, we'll read from verse 27. This is John the Baptist uh, speaking. Oops, I've turned it out to the apostles. John chapter 3 and from verse 27. John answered, no one can receive anything except what is given him from heaven. So John understood this, didn't he? All right. Um, you yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now full. 
And verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. See, John the Baptist understood this. It wasn't going to be anything that he did for the Lord. He had to decrease so that the Lord could increase in him. It was the Lord working through John. Now why? What was the one thing that John was sent for? To proclaim that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus was the Son of God in all his glory. John the Baptist was used to glorify Jesus. Now how can we glorify Jesus? By doing things for him? Well, that at best can glorify us. We glorify Jesus by Jesus being revealed in us so that people can see how wonderful he is. It's not what we do that glorifies Jesus. It's what Jesus does through us. Do you see? If I pass an exam, how can you take the glory for it? If I do something, how can someone else be glorified for it? <coughs> but Jesus is glorified by everything that he does. So what he, the Lord, does through us will glorify him. And that's what John the Baptist understood. Let's have a look at Job. Let's go back to Job. All right, he understood all about this uh, being reduced to nothing. Just a quickie this, but as you well know, Job, um, in the early chapters, is revealed to us as being a righteous, upright man. I, he's a believer, he's following the Lord. Uh, he's a faithful man, as far as the Lord's concerned. He was rich, he was respected, he had everything going for him. And everything he had and was came from the Lord, and he knew that. Now what happens is that this contest is set up between Satan and God. Satan initiated it in that sense. And Satan throws down the challenge to the Lord. Oh, he's only, he only follows you because of all the blessings. So God says, right, I'm going to prove you wrong. Take it all away. Now, Satan destroyed everything that Job had, his wealth, his business, even his children died. Then he lost his health. And he was left with only one thing that he had before it all started, his wife. And his wife's contribution to his plight was she said to him, curse God and die. So the only thing he was left with was probably the thing that he'd have actually liked to have gone first. You know, can you see? Not a very good relationship there with his wife who said, curse God and die. But Job didn't curse God. He was faithful. But he lost everything he had. He was reduced to nothing. Then along came his friends, his so-called friends, and they came out with all the, oh, it's happening to you because of this, that, and the other, and they were all wrong. Uh, but if you go to the end of the book of Job, and the, well, there's so much in there, but there's one bit that I want in regards to this. <coughs> and uh, we'll start reading uh, from... Uh, chapter 42 and verse 1. Job answered the Lord, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is it that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I didn't understand. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. You see, while his friends were coming along, even though everything they were saying to him was wrong and Job knew it, Job was defending himself, he was standing his ground. 
And if you read through the book of Job, even though he was a very faithful man, and as a believer, I take my hat off to him, you'll find that self-righteousness just pours out of him. Just pours out of him. Let's keep reading. And he realises here, I've got a big mouth. He didn't know that before. I remember one night in Suffolk, and uh, if I... If I say that the Lord roared at me out of the Bible, do you know what I mean? When you open the Bible, you read something, and it's like the, you know, the Lion of Judah jumps out of the pages and roars at you. And the verse I hit was this, God is in his heaven, let thy words be few. And I was starting to realise what a big gob I had. I didn't realise it before. But because of some of the things I was going through, I was realising things about myself. Oh boy, did I have my self-assessment completely wrong. Now look, in verse 5 and 6, he says to the Lord, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. See, Job started off as being a believer, genuinely, but he hadn't been dealt with. It was still very much what Job was doing for the Lord. The Lord reduced him to nothing, let Satan take it all away. As a result of that, Job came to realise truly what it was that he was a sinner. And truly what it was that God was holy. And you remember that Jesus said, unless you take up your cross and hate your life in this world, now what it's talking about isn't kind of hating yourself, it's talking about learning to hate our sinfulness. That's what it's talking about. Learning to hate our sinfulness. Because God hates it. He doesn't hate us, he loves us, but God hates it. And here Job has now got the measure of himself. I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And because God had reduced him to nothing, Job now really understood himself and the Lord in a new way. And then if you read just to the end of the chapter, you'll find that everything he had before that had been taken away, God gives it all back to him, and more so. Because then it could be the Lord working through Job. And we see this again and again and again in every area of following the Lord. In the early years of me becoming a Christian, I say probably, I mean the first five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years probably, the attitude that I had, I mean, obviously I, I knew in the Bible it spoke about God testing us, all right. And, uh, and the kind of, the picture that, that I had in my mind is that, I mean, if, if you sit a test at school or if you take a driving test, the idea is basically to get a mark that is sufficient for you to pass. Now, that was the picture that I had of God testing. And, um, and as a disciple, I mean, you know, my, my, my kind of understanding, because you, you have an assessment of yourself, don't you? And my assessment of myself in the early years was probably that I was tipping around the 65-70% mark as a Christian. And I thought that wasn't too bad. And there were certain things in my life I thought, I really have got to work on these. And, and so I really got down and really did my bit. Until I, I was probably pushing 85%, and I thought that was pretty good. I mean, you can't moan at that, can you? A disciple getting an 85% pass mark in following the Lord. I thought, well, you know, Lord, aren't you the lucky one? Because I, I'm following you. And this was the, 
the, this was, I, I laugh at myself now, this was my conception. I thought I was doing all right. I was being faithful, I was working hard, doing what the Bible says, blah, 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 blah. Now, when God eventually managed to get his hands on me, um, I came out realising that the pass mark isn't 50% or 60% or 70%. I realised that the pass mark was 0%. And I started to realise that if you mark your own paper, that's cheating. And our sinful hearts deceive us. And what we do is we mark our own papers, don't we? And we cheat. And the Lord started to show me that what I was marking was things like my ability, my determination, my results. That's what I was marking. And through years of the Lord, all I describe as consistently bashing me through circumstances, I started to realise that what the Christian life was all about was the fruit of the Spirit. Was Jesus living through me? And I suddenly realised, now if I'm to mark that paper, it's around zero. And it really made me realise the truth about myself. That in actual fact, my going was naught percent. It was total and utter failure. That is what God brought me to. And then I realised that my 85% pass mark was sheer illusion anyway. It was pure self-righteousness. And that reinforced my conclusion that the truth is I've actually got 0%. Can you see? And I realised that it was all me. It was Beresford doing things for the law. I realised it was absolutely nothing. It was an absolute joke. Now, one of the things or, or phrases that theologians tend to use is the phrase, a means of grace. Um, and a means of grace is uh, a term they use for anything that enables you to grow. And we saw earlier that prayer, Bible study, fellowship, service, all, right, all these things, you could use the phrase, they are means of grace. <coughs> they are means whereby you receive more of the grace of God and grow in Him. But... I discovered one of the most important means of grace that there is, and quite simply it was this, it was failure. I discovered that failure was one of the greatest means of grace that God uses in order for us to grow. Because as I saw the failure of my discipleship on every side, I began to get the message that I can never follow the Lord. If this is down to my strength, this is where my strength gets me. It's absolutely nowhere. All right. I'm really starting to realise that I was nothing. And all that failure of mine was helping me to get the true measure of myself. That I was absolutely helpless. That I had nothing to contribute to the Lord at all. Because at every point, my contribution to my Christian life was just you know, proving to be disaster. And that any blessing there was, was what God had done in spite of me. And so I realised that the pass mark was 0% and that I passed. And that was a real relief, actually. What a relief to know that the pass mark in something is 0%. Imagine going in to do your A-levels. You know, What's the pass mark? 0%. What a relief to know that the Christian life is what the Lord's going to do through us. It's not what we do 
for the Lord. And so we must never fear facing up to our failure as Christians because the Lord was never expecting success. The Lord merely wants to show us that everything of us, our strength, our attempt, everything of that is going to come to failure. It has to be Him through us. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. First chapter of Corinthians. And uh, I'm going to start reading from verse 26. <coughs> where Paul picks up on the very theme that I've been talking about. He says, consider your call, brethren. I.e., he says, think about it. You've become Christians. Now just think about it. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, i.e. nothing, to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And that's exactly what God said to Gideon. He says, I'm going to reduce you to nothing so you've got nothing to boast about. That you'll know that it's of me, it's what I'm doing, and the glory goes to me. Now then, look. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, <coughs> whom God made our wisdom, our righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. Where do we get wisdom from? In James it says, if you, you know, if you lack wisdom, ask for it. I'll give it to you. Where do we get wisdom from? Jesus is in us. He is our wisdom. Where are we going to get righteousness from? We're not righteous, but Jesus is. He's in us. And then look, our sanctification. How are we going to be free from the power of sin? Jesus is free from the power of sin. And if he's living through us, it's going to happen, isn't it? And in verse 31, Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast of the Lord. Because everything is of him. We have no contribution. If we're making wonderful progress in the Lord, that is not because of us. It's because of him. It's what he does, not what we do. If it was what we do, we could boast in it. But all we can boast of is the Lord. And then in, verse, in chapter 2 he says, Look, when I came to you, brethren, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God in lofty words or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in much fear and trembling. Now isn't this a man who's been reduced to nothing? And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now just go back, we'll read chapter 1 and verse 30 again. Jesus is our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification and redemption. Jesus is our everything. Not us. It's not us. The Christian life is Jesus living through us. Go to the Gospel of John, chapter 15. 
see something that Jesus said. Again, it's a verse, I'm sure we all know it. But to see it in the context of what I'm saying here will help us to really understand it. John 15, we'll read verse 4 and 5. Jesus said, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he is that bears much fruit, fruit the fruit of the Spirit. Look, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Now can you see it? It's not what we do apart from Jesus. It's what Jesus does through us. That is what lasts to eternity. It's the life of Jesus coming through us. Now here's the point. It all boils down to this. When we realise that our contribution is just a joke, it doesn't count. It's, pure, it's the pure self-righteousness of our hearts. As long as we think, well, Lord, don't leave it to me, Lord. <laughs> I mean, that thinking has to go. But it goes by God working to reduce us to nothing. However, when we realise, when we start to get the true measure of ourselves, our helplessness, our weakness, our absolute nothingness, when we eventually realise that when it comes to following the Lord, we are nothing, then a cry goes out in heaven and Jesus yells out at us, come on down, the price is right. You see? That is how we receive from the Lord everything that we need in order to follow him. Now having spoken about nothingness, because that is really what I'm talking about, that we must realise our nothingness, we've got to make sure that we keep a balance. Because two, lines, or two trains of thought can come from what I've said. Both are wrong. And we've got to make sure we don't fall into them. All right. Now, firstly, when we're talking about the fact that before God we are nothing, We've got to make sure we understand what that means and what it doesn't mean. When I say that God wants to reduce us to nothing, that God wants us to realise that we are nothing before him, that doesn't mean that human beings are therefore valueless. It doesn't mean nothing, doesn't mean that. I mean, Hitler, he thought human beings were valueless. Mussolini, he thought human life had no value at all. That's not what we're talking about. Human life is valueless to Saddam Hussein. It's nothing to him. But that isn't what we're talking about. When I'm saying that we must realise that before God we are nothing, I'm not meaning that we must realise we are valueless. Because that is not true. We're talking about nothingness in the context of the fact that because we're sinners, our sinful natures have nothing to contribute to God. That's what I'm meaning by nothingness. Go to John chapter 6. John chapter 6 and find verse 63. Jesus said, It is the Spirit that gives life. The flesh 
is of no avail. That's what we're meaning. The sinful nature has no contribution to make to God whatsoever. Go over to Romans 7. And something that Paul said, Romans 7 and verse 18. Romans 7 is the chapter where Paul was reduced to nothing. If you re I mean, Romans 6, Paul's saying, we died to sin, you know, it's all been done. And then Romans 7 is, the Lord, you know, Paul's saying, well, I, I can't do, I mean, I, I long to serve God, but I can't. And in Romans 7, you see the struggle of a Christian being reduced to nothing. Uh, and in Romans 7, verse 18, look, Paul says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. That's the nothingness that we're talking about. We are not saying in the slightest that we've got to realise that we're of no value to God, because that isn't true. There is value in you and I, and in every man, woman and child. Not the value of righteousness, no, because there is none righteous, no, not one. But our value lies somewhere else completely. Go to James, the letter of James, and I'll show you what the value of human life is. James, and chapter 3. Now he's talking about the tongue here. He says, with it we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse men made in the likeness of God. Now, that is the value of human life. Human beings are infinitely valuable because they're made in the image of God. And the value that God sets on us is no less than the death of his own son. Not because we're worthy, we're not worthy, but simply because that is the value that God sets on human life. So we've got to make absolutely sure that when we're thinking in that God's got to reduce us to nothing, that we're not talking in terms that human beings are somehow valueless before God. That isn't what we're talking about. That's Eastern faiths. They believe that. Eastern faiths uh, are what's called pantheism. It's the belief that everything is God. Everything is a manifestation of God. The only thing that exists is God. Therefore, everything is a variable manifestation of God himself. Therefore, we don't actually exist. It's an illusion. We're actually part of God. So salvation is that when you die, you enter back into your nothingness. <laughs> now, I mean, that to me is a total devaluation of human life. That isn't the nothingness that we're talking here. Uh, now there is one way that this kind of slips into the Christian church um, in what I call worm theology. Now go back to Job and this time we're going to be looking not at something that Job says uh, but something that one of his mates say. And you, you will find this come up sometimes and again it's, it, it's false teaching but I want to show you what it actually means. All right. Uh, in Job 25 and verse 1 to 6. Now this is Bildad the Shuhite, alright? Now he's got a fair bit to say for himself. 
The thing about Job's friends is that if you read the last chapters of Job, God tells him that his friends were wrong. All right. So what they say is wrong. All right. Now look at this. Um, Bildad the Shuhite answered, Dominion and fear are with God. He makes peace in his high heavens. Is there any number to his armies? Upon whom does his light not shine? How then can man be righteous before God? How can he who is born of woman be clean? Behold, even the moon is not bright, and the stars are not clean in his sight. Thus, thus far, he's, he's right. But look at this. How much less man, who is a maggot, and the son of man, who is a worm? Now, the first five verses, everything he says is absolutely <coughs> correct. But Bildad goes and wrecks it with his last bit. He said, man's a maggot, man's a worm. And he says, the reason... The reason that man cannot of himself be right with God is because he's a maggot and a worm. And so this is what I call worm theology. So he's saying there is no value in human life before God at all. Now he's totally wrong. Go, go now to Psalm 22. Let's go to another verse where you get worm. All right. Psalm 22 and verse 6. A Psalm of David, Psalm 22 and verse 6. Now look at this. David writing, But I am a worm and no man, scorned by men and despised by the people. Now, I'm saying that Bildad was wrong in his insistence that man was a worm and a maggot and therefore God couldn't have anything to do with him. But here we've got Psalm 22 a statement, I am a worm and no man. Now we've got to ask, is this King David confirming that Bildad was right? Let's just read the first two verses of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me from the words of my groaning? O oh my God, I cry by day, but thou dost not answer, and by night, but find no rest. Now, what do those two verses tell you about this psalm? It's a prophetic psalm about Jesus. Who was it who said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It was Jesus. This psalm is, is, is what was going through Jesus' mind when he was on the cross. And the first verse of it, he actually cried out in public. So this is a prophetic psalm concerning Jesus himself. So who is it who is saying, I am a worm? It's Jesus. Now, if Bildad was saying that mankind is of no value whatsoever, this is Jesus speaking. How can Jesus, even if the rest of mankind is of no value, Jesus, as the Son of God, is of infinite value? So is this confirming what Bildad said, that man is a worm? Now, let me tell you what this actually means, all right? Because... This thing here, I am a worm and no man, is a reference to an actual literal worm. Now, in the ancient world, they had all manner of ways of getting dye, you know, for colouring goods and linen and, and stuff like that. But the most expensive dye in the then known world was the colour purple. And this is the reason why in the ancient world, the the colour of kings was purple. All right, the, the kings wore purple robes. 
And the high priests in a religion, their robes tended to be purple as well. And the reason that purple became the colour of royalty was because it was the most expensive dye going. And it was because in the ancient world, they only knew of one way to dye something purple. And there was a particular worm that they got the dye from. And when this worm was crushed in vats, it gave off this purple dye. But gathering enough worms to make gallons of dye was a big process. So only the very rich people could afford to wear purple, all right. So here, what we've got is a reference to the fact that Jesus is comparing himself to a worm who, because it's crushed to death, it gives off a dye that ena enables other people to wear the robes of royalty. Now, can you see the point? Jesus, the picture here is that on the cross, Jesus was crushed and lost his life. Why? So we could become the children of the king. That's the picture there. So here, this reference, I am a worm and no man, isn't Jesus saying I'm a worm, you know, man is a worm of no value. He's simply saying, I am being crushed like that worm that gives purple dye so that other people can be made royalty. Because purple was the colour of kings in the ancient world. Because purple dye was the most expensive to make and it came from the crushing of a worm. So here, it's purely that Jesus was being crushed so that we could be royalty. So this idea of worm theology, that man is a maggot and a worm and of no value, is completely wrong. <coughs> the Lord sets great value upon us. And that is why we must set great value upon each other and all people. The basis for the respect of human life is precisely because human beings, whether saved or not, are in the image of God. And if anyone has a, a low view of man, well, they're going to treat other people badly. But when you realise that every man, woman and child is created in the image of God, that is when you really respect the life of other people. So, when we're talking about the fact that God wants to reduce us to nothing, we are not talking about the fact that we're mere maggots and, and a kind of nothing before God in that regards. We're simply talking about the fact that our contribution is nothing to God. It must be what He does through us, not us pooling resources with Him. I remember years ago, I can't remember the woman's name, but she was a missionary, uh, probably last century, all right. And uh, but I read something that she wrote, and, and, and the Lord had used her, but went on to use her in a very marvellous way. And she was praying one day, and she had a vision. And uh, she saw, you know, now she'd been a missionary for years, had completely given up everything to serve the Lord in some foreign country. And she saw a vision, and God was holding dirty rags in front of her. And she said, Lord, what's that? And the Lord said, that's your service, my dear. And she said, but Lord, my service is sanctified. And God said, yes, sanctified flesh. Can you see it? It's no good. It's no good. Because man's righteousness is as filthy rags to God. And that applies to our Christian righteousness. Was that Corrie ten Boom? 
There you are, the, the voice of the Lord from the kitchen there. All right. So it's the point that our contribution is of no use, but it, when, the, when it's the Lord through us, that's what really counts. But it means that we must be out of the... He must get us out of the way. That is what this being reduced to nothing is all about. Now then, there's a second misunderstanding that can come from this. And it's this. There are some people say, right, okay, well, if God wants to reduce us to nothing, uh, we have no contribution to make. Uh, it's all of the Lord. It's not us. It's him living through us. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that there's nothing for us to do. This is vitally important. Some Christians get the attitude of, well, I'm sinful, what can you do? If it's going to be the law through me, well, he'll do it in his own good time. I mean, I'll just carry on as I am now. Can you see? And a kind of a feet up. Well, if God's going to do it, let him get on with it. Now, that also is absolutely wrong. If you go to Romans, Romans chapter 6, again, something that Paul says, We're seeing that the Christian life is what the Lord does through us. But I'm saying that that doesn't mean that we can therefore just sit back, do what we like, and wait for God to do things through us. All right, look. Romans chapter 6, first two verses. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. Now that forever forbids us to just put our feet up and take a kind of a, you know, oh, well, if it's going to be God, let him get on with it. No. For us, in following the Lord, it's hard work and it's toil. You see, remember, we're talking about growing in the Lord. That's where we started. How do you grow in the Lord? And I'm saying you've got to be reduced to nothing. All right. Um, so we're talking about us growing in the Lord. But in another sense, we're talking about the Lord growing in us, aren't we? He must increase, I must decrease. Now, let's take the, the example of Robert in his garden. This is a good example, because Robert is always in his garden working away. All right. Now then, Robert in his garden. Now, the fact of the matter is, and Robert will confirm this, the harder Robert works in the garden, the better the garden grows, right? But it's not Robert making the garden grow. The garden is growing itself. But Robert's hard work is facilitating the good growth of the garden. Robert's hard work is facilitating nature getting on with its job of growing the garden. Can you see what I mean? So here's the point. Robert works hard in the garden. If he didn't, it would be chaos. But because the harder he works in the garden, the better the garden grows. But Robert's hard work is not making the garden grow. All right? Now, go back to 1 Corinthians, and we'll see Paul use this exact same illustration. 1 Corinthians 3, <coughs> only Paul's here talking about the spiritual garden, i.e. the church, because we are God's garden in that sense. Now, 1 Corinthians 3, let's read verse 5 to 7. He says, look, what is Apollos? This incidentally was the Corinthian church were breaking up into kind of personality factions. 
you know, and this group followed him and that group followed her. And Paul's saying, what a load of rubbish. Right. So he says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. As the Lord assigned to each. He's saying, well, we're not special. Don't make us special. We're not special. And he says, look, I planted, Apollos watered. Right, so Paul planted the church, Apollos pastored the church. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither is he who plants, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Now then, what we're seeing from this is therefore we must, as believers, regardless of where we are in the Christian life, if we are following Jesus, we must work hard and faithfully at nurturing that new nature within us. Do you see the point? The new nature within us is the life of Jesus himself. We cannot make that life grow. Only Jesus can. Robert can't make his garden grow. But the better he works at the garden, the better the garden grows. Now, the more faithful we are as believers, the better the new nature of Jesus within us will grow. But here's the point. The growth is from the Lord alone. Now, that's the balance. I cannot make Jesus increase in me. Only Jesus can do that. It is all of him. But if I take an attitude of, oh, put my feet up, he's going to do it anyway, what does it matter? Then he won't grow in me. I've got to work at preparing the soil of my life for him to grow in. Can you see? So it's not feet up in some lackadaisical, fatalistic notion that God's going to do it and nothing can stop it. That's rubbish. We must work hard at our discipleship. Now, earlier on I said that the pass mark is 0%. And no one will ever make progress with the Lord, really, until they've realised that. But here, working hard in the garden, this is where Robert's 10 out of 10 comes from. And it's absolutely right. We've got to go for 10 out of 10 in regards to us working in the garden so that God can make the garden of our lives grow. Can you see the idea there? It's a balance. It's an absolute balance. So we must work hard at our discipleship, put everything we've got into it, and we've got to be willing as well for the Lord to reduce us to absolutely nothing. Now, that's not always a nice thought. It's certainly not nice in its execution. But our problem is that our sinful hearts tell us that we are something. Now, it's only when we realise that we're nothing, because what are we seeing? That God does his best work with nothing, because then there's not something to get in the way. Now, we're the something that gets in the way. So how's God going to solve that problem? Well, he's going to reduce us to nothing. And that's not easy. But we have got to be willing for him to do that. 
because that, in the context of what I've been saying, even though it cuts against our pride and our evil hearts, this is exactly what we are. Before God, we are nothing. And anything that God has ever done through us isn't because of us. It's because of Him. But how often, when we've been aware that God has worked through us, how often has that idea been there in the back of our minds that it was somehow because we're a little bit special? Yes, I put my hand up to that. That is what our hearts tell us. I mean, how many of us say last week if we laid hands on someone and they were healed, you know, someone came in with, 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 with no legs and three heads <laughs> and we laid hands on them. Uh, which, which head will we... Yeah, all right. And then suddenly they've got two legs and only one head. Wow, what a miracle. How many of us could have avoided that, oh, you know, had it been us? Oh, well, the Lord obviously, you know... He's rewarding my faithfulness. Can you see? Now, all that has got to go. We are nothing before the Lord. And he's got to make sure that we really know that. Now, what I've been saying so far is for each one of us, this is an individual thing that's got to work in every believer's life. Any believer can stop it from happening. We can resist God's discipline and he'll go away. But if you really want to go all out with the Lord, then we've got to be willing for God to do this. So individually, it's a must. But have you noticed as well, in the last few months, how God is doing this in us, not just as individuals, but as a church? Look around this Bible study. Have we or have we not been reduced to nothing? We have. And it is marvellous that we've had, we have. It's hurt. It's been hairy. It's been very hairy. But God has shown us our helplessness as a church. And the more we realise that we are helpless, the more we are turning to the Lord for Him to do what only He can do without us getting in the way. And that is good. Now, I don't know whether Robert will remember this. I do. This is going back all probably about 13 years ago in this very room, one Tuesday night. Uh, it was probably, oh, in the first few months of me coming here to doing teachings, we're certainly looking all oh, a good 12 years ago. <coughs> and there was a prophecy in this room. I can't remember who it came from. They're certainly not part of the church anymore because from that original fellowship, the only ones who remain in, in this fellowship from that one of me and Robert, all right? So there's been a total change of personnel over those years, all right? But this was years before the church as we know it now started. I can't remember who the prophecy came through, but the prophecy was this. The Lord was saying that we're all nothing. And that as many believers as you've got, you've just got a naught, all right? So say you've got a church of 20 people, that's 20 nothings. So write naught, 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 20 times. Now, if you've got a piece of paper, I mean, say you've got a check, someone gives you a check, and this check is written out to 20 noughts. If you bank that check, how much are you going to get? Nothing. Because whether you've got one naught, 20 noughts, or 10,000 noughts, you've got nothing. But the Lord said in this prophecy, that he is the one that goes on the front. Oh. 
Now, when you've got a row of noughts, what you've got? Nothing. When you put a one in front, doesn't nothing turn into something very quickly? Now, can you see? As we are brought into our nothinghood, if I can use that word, if Jesus is the one on the front, then the more nothings we are, the bigger the Lord is in us. As I say, if you've got a check with 20 noughts on it, that's no good to you. But if someone puts a one on the front, you're in business, aren't you? Imagine banking a check, one followed by 20 noughts. Now that is exactly what Jesus is doing in us. Jesus as the one in front of loads of nothings adds up to something very, very big indeed. So I, I therefore give you a talk on absolutely nothing.